Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Lucy Howard-Taylor, who is an author, a charity fundraiser, a consultant and a very old friend of mine. And um, it's it's very rarely that I can wrangle her in front of a microphone. We had a lovely chat in a small cafe in South Kensington about how to create ethical value in a creative career, uh, the crippling self-indulgence of privilege and the need to be useful in the world and the sort of uh, overlaps between those uh, Venn diagrams of stress. Uh, I wanted to say thank you to everybody who has been contributing to the Patreon this month uh, and this week, particularly Rachel, Tom, Taru, Anais, Amber, Alistair and Nicholas. You guys um, have uh, subscribed at the $5 level, so you get the personalised thanks on the podcast uh, if there is something you would prefer than personalised thanks on the podcast, please feel free to send me a message. I do want to give you what you want. Often I will write an article in in response to a request from one of the Patreon subscribers or uh, some other thing. If I can help you, let me know. I also wanted to say thank you to the lovely couple who had me on um, at their birthday party, which was a charity fundraiser on Saturday night. It was in a bar. It was a birthday party come charity fundraiser. And a number of the people who were going on in the first half had not done comedy before, or not very much. And that is normally a recipe for a terrible night. And instead, it was really lovely, really life-affirming. We raised a lot of money for a charity, and I regained some faith in humanity. So thank you so much for that. Uh, If you are wanting to come to my gigs in the next few weeks, I'm around London. Follow me on Twitter at Alliterative for that, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. I'm doing the live bugle on the 22nd of February at the Leicester Square Theatre, and I will start my run of Ethos in Adelaide on the 3rd of March. Oh, my goodness. Um, I should say this, which is if you come in the first couple of days of Adelaide, it will be very raw. So if you come in those first couple of days, I'll give you a a pass to come again later on in the run um, for free because in those first couple of days, you're as much a focus group as you are an audience. So I really appreciate it. If you do want to come, you can come again later on in the time, but I understand if you don't want to. That said, uh, I will let you get on with listening to the podcast um, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Do email me if you have any issues or questions or anything really, alicerfraser at gmail.com. I do read all of your emails. I try to reply to all of your emails. If I have not replied to your email, it's probably because it's really thoughtful and I wanted to put it aside and um, come back to it when I had a little bit more time. So feel free to poke me on that if you want a response. I do really want to respond to everybody if I humanly can. And until it becomes an overwhelming workload, I make that commitment that I will try to reply to everything. So if I haven't replied... It's either because you sent me a picture of your penis or because I genuinely put it aside thinking I should, I should address myself to that in a real way. That's all. That's all from me for this pre-show rambling, pre-chat rambling. I will let you listen to this conversation in South Kensington with Lucy Howard-Taylor. Who are you and what are you drinking? I am a girl named Lucy, and I am drinking um, a very exciting Japanese green tea with floating roasted bits of rice. <laughs> That's a good one. 
it's um, a bancha matcha mix. No, ba- a gemacha matcha mix, um, which is. Like some more. Uh, I think I'm probably high on tea high at the on moment, the, on the given that qualities. today I've had at least four different kinds of tea. Sounds like a good day. That's, a, that's my that's my measure of achievement. Uh, <laughs> is how many different kinds of tea I've drunk in a day. Um, Though I realised the other day that I actually now have a physical addiction in that I had a headache and I realised it was because I hadn't had any tea that day. That's problematic. Yeah. You might need to work on that. Yeah. Maybe rule boss. uh, Yes. As far as as addictions go, it's a comparatively um, benevolent one, but it was a a moment of realisation for me that I hadn't had tea in, I think it was two days and, you know, had a nervous breakdown as a result. Uh, so what have you been wrestling with of late? Well, I've recently started, well, by recently, I mean in the last six months, started freelancing and it's proved very difficult. And for me, I'm wrestling with some strange inner demons and rules for living that I hadn't realised were there, especially around self-worth and the sorts of projects and work that is worth going after whether writing is an indulgence or actually a viable you know activity Um, so why don't you lay out your circumstances at the moment at the moment Mm -hmm. well my circumstances at the moment I am I am freelancing part-time as a consultant for a small arts charity I'm writing as much as I can which is not very much because I seem to uh, be thinking way too much about that and that seems to act as a natural sort of creative block um, and I'm basically faffing around flailing my arms and trying to work out what my next step is um, and trying to create some sort of a some sort of a realistic structure for my life that I can work within which is proving harder than I anticipated I didn't realise quite how much I depended on the office environment to actually be productive um, how much I need it to, needed it to prop myself up. So going back a few steps, your idea about being a writer, which is the mm. thing that you want to do and actually have done, you've written and yes. published a book. So you are a actually long a long time ago. But nonetheless, that is, this is a run on the board that many people who call themselves writers have not hit yet. True. But so they might be writing on a more daily or more functional level than I do. Yeah. But even so, you, you're feeling like your desire to be a writer is inherently unethical or no, I feel, amoral? I or? feel that it's an indulgence. I feel like there are... I feel ultimately, look, the sort of work that I'm doing and the work that I've been doing for a long time, particularly in, in arts fundraising, I'm, I'm good at but I haven't enjoyed. But at the same time, you know, the vast majority of people in the world don't enjoy their work and have no other option. And I don't see why I should be any different perhaps work isn't meant to be inherently pleasurable Uh, you know I I do struggle with the idea of you know following your passion and making it pay I think that's a strange new concept that isn't actually that realistic yeah I I don't know the idea that that doing something that you enjoy and find pleasurable is indulgent um I'm it yeah, that's that's true. That when you put it like that, <laughs> makes it sound a bit Calvinist. <laughs> I mean, it is Calvinist. It is also true, mm. but it's also the whole course of human history has taken us to this point now, 
where people who are in this position of privilege built on the fact that we have washing machines and, uh, you know, free or accessible education and emancipation and liberation and the suffrage and all of those things have built to this point where you, as a woman in her late 20s, can decide what you want to do that is sure that's that true. is that you can be self-indulgent is a privilege but that doesn't mean it's bad no but privilege is such a buzzword and i sort of feel whenever you identify a point of privilege you probably should um well it's one thing to acknowledge that your privilege true. is has come at the cost of other people's underprivilege some of it has and some of it hasn't I would say mm-hmm. you know the the invention of washing machines for example being a relatively victimless crime <laughs> um, the victim being the patriarchy eventually uh, but you when when you know the reality is we live in a capitalist society and there are people who are at the bottom of that society sure. on whose shoulders we stand but you cannot erase that privilege by feeling like shit about it no, that's true. And, and, and it's, it's one thing to go, what can I do to make the world better for the people around me? Sure. And it's another thing to go, well, I'm not going to eat this ice cream. I'm going to let it melt because I don't deserve it. <laughs> In my hand. You know, other people don't get <laughs> ice my cream. Arm. <laughs> so I'm not going to eat this ice cream. You know, it, I know. It's, it's, a completely, it's a completely unproductive and useless emotion. I do get that. And I think part of the problem at the moment is not is having too much time to think and attack, you know and worry and and over examine these you know little thoughts that normally I wouldn't ha- I wouldn't give even the slightest bit of heed to and I'm not even sure if it's it, that it's writing as an indulgence so much as it feels of limited use it feels like I think when you go out into the into the world and you and you and you decide upon a career, I think there probably should be some sort of balance between pleasure and skill and usefulness. Yes, I think there there is. I do think it's a. I mean, maybe. Well, I do think there there there's, there, there's a problem with the with with the kind of common or very popular rhetoric around, you know, working your passion. I think. It, that, that happens to the detriment of the other conversation that should be had, which is where can you be, be of greatest use? Oh, what yeah. Good, you know, what, where, can, where can your interests and perhaps your passion, but not always your passion, because where can, where can they be put to best use that will actually serve and build the community that you're part of or the cause that you are, you know, find important or whatever? And I know that writing is extremely powerful. I, you know, I know that, I, you know, I still have people contact me, you know, even though my book was published over, you know, 10 years ago. I still have people contacting me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter saying, your book really moved me. It helped me recover from um, my illness. Um, But I still struggle with the idea that, that writing, oh gosh, I'm going to say this, is, is... not useless, of course, because it's extremely powerful. But I do think there's a hierarchy of perceived usefulness, yes. if that makes sense. And writing and the arts are on the back 
kettle when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah, well, if you think about... Well, it sort of depends on how you articulate it, right? If you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs... Sure. ..you're not feeding water to people who have no, no. water, nor are you providing shelter to people who require shelter. Sure. Nor, nor are you saving lives for people who are ill. That said, when my granny was with her friends hiding in the basement during the Holocaust... Mm when they had nothing, when they would go out during the air raid alarms because that was the safest time for them to be on the streets was when bombs were falling. They did little plays for each other. Mm. You know, the arts is simultaneously sort of the cherry on top of civilization, and you sort of think last on, first off when it comes to that. You think it's the the last thing that goes on top of all of the other requirements of civilization, But, in fact, it is one of the last things to go. It is one of the last things to fail. That's true. That's true. And, I mean, I always remember, and I do believe in this very strongly, and it's just because of what, you know, it's just because of the uncertainty and weird sort of re, you know, transitional space that I'm in at the moment that I'm even questioning this because I've worked in the arts all my life and I believe hugely in, in, in the power of them. But it's like what Churchill said during, you know, during the war. Oh, gosh, I sound like a Brit. During the war um, where, you know, if it isn't for, you know, the arts and the cultural heritage and the legacy, you know, those sorts of intangible parts of, you know, the way in which we tell our stories of who we are and what we mean to each other, then what what, what have we ever fought for? What have we ever, you know, died for? Why do we drink water and have, you know, know, and, and try to stay alive if it isn't for... Yes, the literature and the music and the theatre and the arts and like and the, and not just those kind of refined no, sort no, no, of, of uh, expressions of of language. Yeah, but the the way that we think of ourselves yeah. is shaped it's by language. Connect, it's the connective tissue. It's one of the reasons why the kind of the discourse about language is so fraught at mm. the moment because people are using language to define their identities, to defend their identities. Yeah. The whole idea of, um, of, of whiteness or privilege mm. or any of these things, mm. it's not that they wouldn't exist if we were all mute and incapable of communication, but they wouldn't exist if we were all mute and incapable of communication. We, would not, we wouldn't exist in a society if we didn't have these ways to think of ourselves. I mean, I'm not going to go as far as, like, 1984 and say there's no word for rebellion, there's no such thing as rebellion. I think you can have uh, an, a felt wrongness that you are incapable of articulating. Yes. In fact, I think that's one of the biggest problems now is that there are felt injustices yeah. that people are using clumsy words to try and, to try and articulate and encapsulate, and they're using the wrong words becomes, or they're using words that are uh, subject to interpretations. Yeah. It becomes reductive very quickly. It becomes extremely reductive that you can use a word like uh, violation and it can mean anything from a traffic infringement to a violent crime mm, mm, mm. That, that leads to death mm. and that word can, can be taken the wrong way or yeah. taken the right way or yeah. taken in any number of ways as, like a, as a poet or a comedian that is part of the joy of words but it's also part of the danger of words and how can you say that's not important? That's absolutely true. I, I can't say that. But you feel it's not important, or you feel it's feel not that valuable. No, no, I, no, no. I feel, I feel that my 
skills as a writer can't access that valuable part, if that makes sense. I, I feel like I can't offer that. I can't, I can't, I can't, I mean, I suppose it, it just actually just comes down to a, to a point of lack of confidence and self-worth. It's not that it doesn't, it's not that that kind of, you know, it's not that language isn't important or profound or, you know, incredibly um, powerful. It's that I feel like my contribution to it can't be. And it's, it's like what we were talking about before you, you know, gave me this fabulous microphone. <laughs> what plumber ever thinks, you know, my, you know, how can my contribution as a plumber ever be, you know, important or powerful enough to actually get, get people's attention? But it is, it is sort of different. There is a... There are many. There is a. There is a glut. You know, we're living in an age where everyone. There are a lot of very, very good writers and a very immediately accessible platform for them to publicise themselves and write, which is obviously the internet. And it's about how how do you find the distinction? How do you find you know a place where your words can be valuable and powerful and interesting? If and everybody's special, no one's if special. Everyone's all you know. I know, and I don't. It's not that I want to be. Not that I want to be special, but of course, everybody needs to find some sort of self definition or something that provides them with an outline for themselves. Yeah, I'm sort of teasing you in that. I know you are. In that, <laughs> in that I do think one of the most important things in the world is to find out how you can be useful. Sure. And that it's a more difficult proposition than you would think mm. to to be useful to other people. It's quite hard. But I suppose it's also, I mean, I'm you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm sounding quite egotistical as well because maybe... It's all very. What I'm saying is all very individualistic, and I guess that again comes back to the idea of you know writing being a useful exercise because it is inherently solitary. Maybe um, it doesn't need to be all things, though. No, that's true. And I think when you, you could, re- I think when you really care about something and you raise it up to a point of you know the be all and end all, and this is my self definition, and this is ultimately what I'd like to do in my life. There is a tendency to to you know uh, overemphasize it to a point where it is where it does become the you know the everything. Yes. Well, one of the things that I like about comedy is it's for me one of the appeals of it was that I wasn't good at it, and it didn't hurt my feelings to be bad at it, and so the project of getting better at it was a really interesting one. It didn't one. hurt your feelings? No. No, it didn't. It's only now that I think I'm good at it that it starts to hurt my feelings yes, if I'm perceived to be bad at you've it. You've got to have some you know, emotional investment but, in something. Yeah, that's true. But the initial project was to get good at something that I didn't care about. And then as, as it kind of kind develops of and grew into my into my role in the world then it becomes tied up with my obsessions with other things of of changing people's minds and 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 being useful in that way or or uh, connecting with people or using language in in an effective mm. and powerful way or mm. or involving um deeper emotions and using laughter as a tool to open up that box of worms that people wouldn't otherwise ever want to open up yeah. Yeah. and i know it's a can of worms Shh. Uh, <laughs> I like a box of worms. Box of worms <laughs> might uh, get a bit damp though. With a lock, um, and every hour one worm comes out the lock. The, the, the. What I don't, I can't even remember what my initial point here was, but I think it was something to do with part of the reason that I liked comedy and began to care about it 
was because I had not put it out of reach of myself in that way. I didn't yes. have it on a pedestal yes. in that way. Yes. And, 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 and there, yeah, there is something to be said for bringing something down, just deflating the ideal a little. Well, comedy and actually, isn't one of the great arts in the way that I was brought up. It wasn't mm. opera. It wasn't poetry. poetry. It wasn't uh, ballet or it wasn't something that I could um, be held up against Shakespeare and found mm. wanting. Mm. I didn't have a lot of respect for many comedians when I started out. And as I got more into it, I've found comedians who I'm in awe of. Of course. But when I started off, I didn't have those pillars of daunting perfection against which to measure myself. Mm. And that made it easy to do. Um, and, and, and then to find the value in that later on, you know, is, is more difficult. So your feelings could be hurt now. Oh yeah, absolutely. But that, in the end, it still is just comedy. True. Um, and and then every part of every part that's on top of that, I guess, every part where where somebody will come to me and say that they've been affected by my work or that I've had an impact. Mm. That's a nice bonus. Mm. That's a really beautiful thing. It makes me feel accomplished and, and and so on. I don't think the doing of comedy in itself is a, a sacred act. Mm. I don't like, think there are many sacred acts. <laughs> but then it, it also doesn't relieve me of the burden of trying to be useful in other ways. True, true. So if I think I have to do a comedy show that will save the world that's crippling yeah of course but if i if i have to do a comedy show that's a good comedy show that people will be moved by and enjoy but also i have to go out in the world and help people do some pro bono work yes that is exactly it then it then it takes the pressure off both of those things you can be completely paralyzed by wanting to do the thing instead of just a thing yeah there's a reason that no one's ever written the great american novel yeah exactly Exactly. Um, and I think for me, certainly in, as I'm trying to redefine the way I work and how I make money, that's been quite an important lesson to learn. I haven't learned it yet. I'm learning it. But that, you know, I'm not moving on to the next thing, the next big thing in my life. There, there, you know, there are, I'm sort of meandering my way around and finding, you know, some things which work together to create some sort of a meaningful life at the moment. Yeah. Um, and it, it's different from what I've had before and I don't have the sort of, you know, semi-corporate trajectory that I had in a big arts organisation like I had in Sydney. Um, but there are other me- indicators of success. And for me, I'm, I'm having to adjust my, my sort of indicators of what success and self-worth look like. Because yeah. if, if it's not a reliable and good salary, which for many people it is, then what is it? You know, how do I, how do I, feel, how do I feel successful in a career that doesn't have externally mediated KPIs? Yeah. You know, and that's quite, that's, that's, you know, it sounds really basic, but it's actually quite, it is difficult. Because well, I do rely on, on you know, I, I, I work well under external limitation. I think, I don't know what the answer is. I think one way to do it is to treat it as modular. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. In that, you know, success or life or progress is not linear, it's no. modular. So you, you have to either get people to give you or to create yourself mm. moments where you can go, where am I? Where was I? How far have I come? Mm. I'm going to box that off as a success or yes. a failure. And Which is just as fine. I'm telling, I'm telling myself it's just as fine. And actually, how often do you, how, how often and how many opportunities are there to actively fail? I mean, it's all about context, isn't it? Well, the great thing is um, that we narrativize our own lives and we rewrite failures as successes. We do, and I'm very good at narrating my own life. So you don't have to worry. Even if you fail, you'll rewrite it as a success of That's some true. kind. That's true. That's true. I mean, I will try. You can try. <laughs> I can try. Um, I mean, if, if you want to keep moving forward, that is kind of the only way to do it, is, is going, well, that was a failure. What did I learn? What's the next step? So I have an interesting question because it's another one that I've been dwelling on recently, which is Alice Fraser in 2018. Mm. And Alice Fraser, say, in 2008. Yes. Has she, has she, I mean, presumably the trajectory, I mean, where you are now is not what you would have envisioned for yourself back then. No. How does it compare? Do you, do you find yourself thinking back to, you know, when you were younger and envisioned a future for yourself and finding yourself lacking? Do you find yourself exceeding? Do you find that it's just a thing that has happened that, you know, that just is what it is and you... I'm quite good at not thinking about the things that I don't want to think about. Right. I'm not so good at that. <laughs> so... Not very good, but I'm quite good at it. So I don't. I think. I think my direction has been um, guided by looking at the next step, not. Yes. And 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 also maybe uh, at the compass that's in my hand. So I feel like mm. I'm going in a direction, mm. um, and that I'm taking one step after another. But I don't tend to look at the next hill. I'll look at the horizon oh. and my own feet. Have you always done that? Because yeah. that sounds quite like like quite a useful way to live I, I think I always look at the far off topography and then freak out because I'm not sure how to get from this spot that I'm standing in right now to the top of the next peak yeah. without realizing that actually there are you know footsteps and little little valleys and a couple of trees and a, you know I think having, having the experience of mum being very sick when I was little has yeah. made me extremely wary about planning for the middle term that's true um that, that you can't guarantee that your brain will hold out, you can't guarantee that your body will hold out. True. So that um, not, 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 not pleasure in the moment, but achieving in the moment, consolidating these small steps mm. and kind of um, tying them off and, mm. and feeling them as steps and progress, not comparing them to, to a far-off goal, not seeing them as... as um, a proportion of a, a full mm. thing is the way that, that I kind of operate. Yeah. Because if I see myself as 20% of 100%... You're always going to feel what if, less than. What if the 80% disappears? Exactly. You know, it's, exactly. A, it's 100% of this much, and then the next step is 100% of that much, mm. if that makes no, sense that makes, at all. No, that makes absolute sense. Because um, life isn't... No, it's not. You're right. 
It's more like buffering, where you think you think you're 84, yeah, and then like, all of a sudden you're 17. Oh, like oh, I'm stuck. <laughs> oh, <laughs> incredibly frustrating. Um, but yeah, I don't know if obviously that's to the way I work, and that's not always the best way to work. It means that I'm very bad at planning for the medium term. Mm. I'm very bad at commitment. Mm. Um, committing to, I'll, I'll say, yeah, yeah, sure, I can do something. Uh, but if it's sort of something for three months away, I'll still be doing it a week before the deadline. Sure, sure. There are deep and real downsides to that way of thinking. But what it is good for is just putting one foot step foot in foot in front of the other, one step in front of the other, one foot in a step in front of the other step. Foot. That sounds like you're going to make good progress with that. Yeah. Uh, limbic movement. Yeah. Whereas I just. I found myself more often than not lately just sort of standing still and looking around and thinking, feeling, feeling myself living a little too much in the future and a little too much in the past. I probably should start meditating again. That always helps me get things back into current motion. I mean, yeah, that's the whole point, I guess. Is, is Why is it so hard, though, to ever actually do a thing for yourself that is good for yourself? Why is it that the brain is so prone to inertia? to not doing new things. I don't know, but it's it is. It's a real struggle. I mean, I've been telling things. myself that I need to meditate for, for months. For months. And I have days where I, you know, I'm not in an office anymore. I could sit down and take, you know, 20 minutes just to sit and feel the present moment. And for whatever reason, I just, I avoid it. I think Strenuously. It, <laughs> it, it's one of those things um, like, like athletics or any kind of sport because it's a discipline right it's also avoidance i think maybe i am better at avoiding things that i don't want to think about than i thought yeah possibly possibly well, it's one of those things when you're in the habit of doing it you can't imagine not doing it Absolutely. and when you're not doing it it's such a Absolutely. it's such a difficult thing to do but like it's i don't know why don't you want to do it what's the downside for you realizing unpleasant things but I never do realize unpleasant things so I'm meditating I always feel fabulous afterwards <laughs> um, why don't you want to feel fabulous then because I don't deserve to feel fabulous right now because I'm not doing any work uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So it would be unearned fabulousness. Correct. And that, 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 that your lack of contentment is in some way a driver for you to Correct. progress. I've always felt that, I mean, I've always found that certainly with my writing, my writing's always come out of places of not necessarily feeling miserable. And that doesn't imply also that the writing is miserable because I hope not all of it has been miserable. But I found happiness has always been a little bit of a, a um, anathema to creativity for me. Well, I think yes and no. Like, we are driven by a, a sense of um, incompleteness. And happiness, well, I mean, happiness, or in as much as it's sort, of so, it's sort of sufficient in its own little warm, you know, buoyant space it doesn't feel like there's much space for striving in that maybe there is probably overthinking it but i feel like in order to actually make make progress in my life i do need to i need to guard my dissatisfaction does that make sense yeah it does but then look 
I don't think you're a good enough meditator <laughs> to meditate away your no, drive to achieve. That is very true. That is very true. And as my cognitive behavioural therapist a year ago said, there are other, there are, are so many other drivers other than threat. Yes. There are other ways of you know, projecting yourself onwards, creating impetus other than fear and anxiety and dissatisfaction and disappointment. You know, there's actually genuine interest in the thing that you're doing or wanting to, you know, develop something in concert with somebody else. I mean, there are, there are, I, mean I can't actually think of any other drivers because my drivers are primarily threat-made. But I know from people who don't seem to spend most of their lives in a state of constant anxiety but who are very successful that there must be other ways of being successful when not anxious just haven't discovered them yet well I think that um, I have faith in your ability (laughs) I think you're an excellent writer I think it's worthwhile writing and I think it's worthwhile writing things that aren't good yes that's true because the first as I can't remember who said it but I do think about it a lot but the first draft of anything is shit so you might as well get it done as quickly as possible yeah And, and on the other hand with meditating Either you're going to be incapable of meditating away your own insecurities or you will and then the fact that you have no drive to achieve will be moot. It won't be a problem anymore because I won't care because I'll be so bloody happy. Yeah. (laughs) True, true, true. Well, where can people find you online? Well, I am very, very rarely on Twitter but I mainly use Instagram, Lucy Sheena. And I have a website now. Oh, which tell is them very about exciting, the website. Which is com, which sounds very adult. LucyHowardTaylor.com. Look her up. <laughs> Send her messages. Uh, read her book uh, and whatever else she has written by the end of this year. Yes. Deadlines are important. Yeah. Send, send some fearsome things her way. <laughs> All calming things, whatever you prefer. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Loudy rifle, doll, loudy rifle, day. 
On Monday morning she comes in, she hangs her coat on the highest pin, turns around for to view her frames, crying down your doffers, cry up your ends, lousy rifle doll, lousy rifle day. And when the boss he looks round the door, tie your ends up doffers, he will roar. Well, tie our ends up, we surely do. For Elsie Thompson, but not for you. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day. Oh, Elsie Thompson is going away. Is it tomorrow or yet today? We'll tie our ends up and leave our frames and wait for Elsie to return again. Lally rifle doll, lally rifle day.